Pakistan has a new prime minister, 70-year-old Shahbaz Sharif. He replaced Imran Khan, who failed to stop a no-confidence motion against him and ultimately lost it in what was a dramatic last-minute vote on the night of the 9th April. 174 members have recorded their votes in favor of the resolution. Sharif won with 174 votes after more than 100 lawmakers from Khan's Pakistan Tehreek-e-Insaf Party (PTI) resigned and walked out. Khan's ousting and Sharif's win means that no Pakistani prime minister since the country's formation has been able to complete a full five-year parliamentary tenure. Imran Khan also became the first prime minister in the history of the country to lose office to a parliamentary no-confidence vote. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Sohail Akram. In this edition, we're looking at Imran Khan's fall from power and ask if he will make a comeback. Before we start, if you want to get all the latest from Beyond the Headlines, hit subscribe in your podcast app. Imran Khan came to power in 2018 amid accusations of fraud by the opposition, including the very man who replaced him as the prime minister. But Khan's ascent to power was slow. Imran Khan was a national sports hero after he won the country its first Cricket World Cup in 1992. This brought him glory and made him a lot of friends, both in Pakistan and globally. After he left cricket and made his foray into politics, he brought his celebrity charisma along. Soon, he was to challenge two well-established political forces in the country, the Nawaz Sharif-led Pakistan Muslim League N and Benazir Bhutto's Pakistan People's Party. He entered politics as an outspoken critic of government mismanagement and corruption in Pakistan. But after all these years, now it's him the opposition is accusing of corruption, conspiracy and failing to fix the economy. According to official data, inflation surged 9.2% in October 2021 from the year before, and the value of the Pakistani rupee is dropping. On the 7th of April, the Pakistani rupee hit a historic low of 191 rupees to the US dollar. We spoke to Ian Talbot, a professor in history of modern South Asia at the University of Southampton, to understand what might have turned the tide against Khan. Um, in 2018, of course, Nawaz Sharif had been disqualified by the Supreme Court as uh, Pakistan Prime Minister over the Panama case sort of corruption issues. And it was in that context that uh, Imran Khan, who'd been running a campaign, uh, which was basically an anti-corruption campaign for many years uh, in in, uh, Pakistan, uh, was appealing for the creation of what he called a new Pakistan. Pakistan that was run uh, in a a way that was not the dynastic politics of either uh, the Pakistan People's Party or uh, the PMLN, uh, but a new style of politics uh, appealing to youth uh, and to middle class and to try and uh, create uh, a fresh start, really, for for Pakistan. That was the appeal that... uh, he was running in that in that sort of election campaign. I don't think uh, Imran Khan has been able to achieve the things that uh, he promised, partly because, of course, uh, the disruption uh, as a result of the, the COVID uh, pandemic, but also uh, Pakistan's economy 
uh, has been uh, going through a very difficult spell. Some critics would argue partly because of the incompetent uh, mismanagement of the economy by a relatively inexperienced uh, economic team that uh, he initially created around himself. And I think that uh, the government took a long time to, to get going. Uh, it probably didn't have uh, the degree of preparation uh, for power uh, that the previous uh, governments have had. And then it was overtaken by events, both internationally uh, and domestically, which meant that uh, increasingly all that the Imran Khan government seemed to be about was the pursuit of accountability, uh, which was seen by uh, many people, not just critics, uh, as being rather one-sided. And that this issue of corruption and of accountability uh, really became so dominant that very little else was achieved in terms of uh, bringing about some of these changes which had been promised. Obviously, there were successes uh, as well as failures, and certainly the handling uh, of uh, the COVID pandemic would be one uh, success uh, for, for the government. Uh, and also, there were the beginnings of uh, creating uh, perhaps uh, new employment opportunities and uh, to try and turn the economy around. But this didn't really go as far as uh, I think people were hoping and they didn't see necessarily uh, evidence of a new Pakistan. Imran Khan's promise of this new Pakistan was in many ways based on refurbishing the old Pakistan. But Professor Talbot says Khan was always riding on a thin majority with a certain sense of vulnerability to his government. We must remember that it was the thin majority, so that his government was quite vulnerable, relying on allies uh, in, in order to have a, a majority in the National Assembly. So he was in a vulnerable position. Why did he lose that majority? Well, partly, I suppose, he didn't meet always the expectation of those groups outside of PTI who were allied with him. I think they would say, uh, to take them for granted uh, and, and not to reach out as much as he might have done. I think that there was that element to it. There was also an element which was very important, which was that uh, Punjab, the main province uh, in many senses, the powerhouse of Pakistan, had, again, a very inexperienced chief minister. And there were lots of complaints uh, about how uh, Imran Khan was shielding his position. Uh, and that also fed into the more federal uh, criticisms of uh, his administration. So he was in a vulnerable position uh, and didn't appear to some people to be sort of reaching out to those who he needed to do so too. And I think one final thing about how he lost his majority was also this issue of how much support was he receiving from the so-called establishment uh, in, in Pakistan? And were there rifts appearing uh, between him and the military? Uh, and uh, that could lead people to uh, wonder what his long-term prospects were uh, and perhaps to be more ready uh, to um, pull away from uh, his his government than if they thought that uh, he was working closely uh, and with the support uh, of the so-called establishment.
When Imran Khan came to power in 2018, his opponents said he was elected with help from the powerful military, which has ruled the country for half of its 75-year history and garners much public support. There's a widespread belief inside Pakistan that one of the reasons for his exit now is because he and the military have fallen out. Professor Talbot says there might be a number of reasons at play. Pakistan is what some political scientists would call a hybrid regime. That's one in which um, elected politicians have to work with unelected institutions of the state, whether it's the armed forces or uh, even uh, the judiciary through judicial activism. This is something which has not just come about in the last few years, but has been a, a feature certainly uh, of, uh, I think, uh, Pakistan politics till at least the time of Zero Haq, uh, if not before that uh, period of time. So that any elected uh, politician is, is, is operating within this framework. Uh, so certain areas, um, these unelected institutions may have considerable influence over. And, and it's important to bear in mind when we're looking at Imran Khan's um, not uh, being able to serve his full five-year term, that no uh, elected Pakistan prime minister since 1947 uh, has actually seen out uh, their full five-year term. Some of them have been dismissed through Supreme Court action, as uh, Nawaz Sharif was. Some have been uh, dismissed by the president, uh, acting uh, perhaps on behalf of uh, the military, as happened in the 1990s, there's been obvious uh, direct military coups and interventions. So in one sense, uh, Imran Khan not serving his full term as prime minister it is, it is not that surprising in the framework uh, in which Pakistan politics uh, operates. Um, having said that, why had he lost at this moment of time, perhaps, the sort of sympathy uh, of the military. Uh, and I think it's a fair point to say that uh, the opposition would not have brought their no-confidence motion forward, resolution forward, if they hadn't been assured of military neutrality in the National Assembly. Why had he uh, lost that uh, support? Perhaps, you know, there's a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them is... Uh, the military would have been aware and would have been watching what could be termed economic mismanagement. And the military uh, obviously are not going to intervene directly because of that, uh, but they may begin to question uh, the competence of a government uh, as a result of that. There may have been aspects of Imran Khan's foreign policy uh, which again, uh, the establishment, the security establishment may have questioned. There's also, of course, the issue of perhaps Imran Khan treading on the toes to a certain extent of, of uh, the army chief over the issue who was going to be the, uh, the head of ISI, which is, of course, the military intelligence. The prime minister is perfectly entitled uh, constitutionally to choose that. Uh, but obviously, uh, the head of ISI is directly responsible to the military. 
Uh, and the sort of hiatus, of, I think about three weeks or so, when there was toing and froing over whether or not the government w- was going to agree to uh, who the military wanted uh, as a new head of ISI, I think that uh, was probably a decisive moment. Johan Chako is a writer and South Asia analyst who regularly contributes to The National. He recently wrote about Imran Khan and analyzed if Khan's fight for a Pakistan was just beginning. Johan says that Imran Khan had good relations with the military, but last year saw a shift in their stance. So Imran Khan came on as somebody who extensively praised the military, who extensively advertised his close ties to the institution and his respect for it. And the military was pretty pro-Imran Khan. And that was at several levels, right? One as an institution. It's important to understand the army operates as an institution, unlike many other bodies in Pakistan. That's part of its power. But also at a personal level, many retired and serving officers really liked Imran Khan. Things started becoming really difficult, I I would say, last year. Um, They had concerns about his style of governance, which was very populist. Um, Decision-making was ad hoc. The military in Pakistan is different from elsewhere because it it has as I said, since an early point, seen itself as the ultimate guarantor of Pakistan's stability, uh, which means that they tend to find themselves thinking about things that militaries don't often think about, like is the economy being run properly? So they have those concerns, but the the thing that they're the most sensitive about uh, is maintaining their autonomy. So when Imran Khan started trying to essentially change the rules uh, through which the uh, director general of the ISI, the Inter-Services Intelligence, that was made, um, they start to get very nervous. And the conflict since then has only escalated. Imran Khan defended his stay in power, claiming that there was a US conspiracy to unseat him. It was based on a purported letter that Khan says contains threats to his government. Hours after he managed to dismiss the no-confidence vote against him the first time, he named the US official. He said what he called the threat letter was sent by the U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for South Asia and Central Asian Affairs, Donald Liu. But Khan has failed to provide any evidence of this letter. The United States denies any attempts to interfere or of regime change. Khan's opponents say it was his ruse to buy time. Pakistani security officials have dismissed it as an internal diplomatic communication that many analysts believe he may have exaggerated. Johan thinks there might be a piece of context missing here. There isn't really very much evidence of this. I mean, the the fact is that Pakistan's main importance uh, to the United States was in the context of Afghanistan. Afghanistan has been extremely low on the Biden administration's priority. The only thing they cared about was getting out. And once they left, they paid practically no attention to Afghanistan and practically no attention to Pakistan. And this has been extremely galling to Imran Khan. Imran Khan has been deeply upset by the fact that uh, President Biden in, in the United, uh, of the United States hasn't bothered calling him uh, since he was uh, since he entered office last January. So it seems very unlikely that they care about this. Now, uh, yes, Imran Khan visited Moscow, but that ha- that really doesn't matter to the, to the Americans in the sense that it doesn't actually change the situation in Ukraine. Rather, what I see is that Imran Khan is mobilizing anti-American populism. There is a lot of anti-Americanism 
in the Pakistani public for various reasons. In the 70s, it was a perception that America had betrayed Pakistan in, during wars with India, had let it down. And you know, since the 2000s, it's really been the so-called war on terror, the drone strikes, the use of special forces and covert operatives on Pakistani soil, the erosion of Pakistani sovereignty. Professor Talbot mirrors the same opinion. Relationship that he had with the United States, he went downhill with Biden's election. Uh, he had established quite good relations with Trump as a figure who spoke his mind, as a populist figure. Uh, I, I think uh, relations were cool uh, right from the beginning with the Biden administration. In a way, I were worsened still further, you know, over the issue of the visit to Moscow on the eve of the invasion of Ukraine, and then all the fallout from that uh, diplomatically. And, and of course, that is part of the narrative which Imran Khan has uh, developed, you know, that uh, it, it was an American regime change uh, move. In fact, it will be interesting to see what comes out of any uh, in-camera National Assembly sort of session eventually that's looking at uh, the, this so-called um, threatening letter or threatening cable uh, that uh, Imran Khan has um, mentioned publicly on a number of occasions as a factor in the, uh, the move against him. But um, it may be, you know, that this will undermine his position if it comes out that really he was exaggerating what was a very standard diplomatic sort of exchange. So that um, that issue, I think, um, is going to be important going forward uh, because it could undermine his credibility. Imran Khan may not have the country's top job anymore, but does it mean he's done? Those who know Khan as a cricketer know that he doesn't easily give up. And a reflection of that was felt within hours of his ousting. He rallied hundreds of thousands of supporters in protests across the country, saying he's not going to accept what he calls an imposed government of Shahbaz Sharif. Professor Talbot says Khan is an active campaigner and will go back to what he's good at. There, there will be a, um, a strong element of popular support for him uh, within the country. Whether that will be enough for him to succeed uh, in the next election, uh, though he is a, a, a very uh, sort of active campaigner. And I, and I think that this was probably one of the things, going back to the earlier point, which, which was important, that uh, his political mobilization skills, uh, he didn't really take over into administrative skills, as many populist leaders don't uh, achieve. He was much more uh, into, uh, I, I think, popular um, rhetoric and policies, perhaps the day-to-day -day grind of, uh, of government. And he, he wasn't, uh, I, I think, as effective in that way. But certainly he will reach out uh, to sections of, of the Pakistan community. Uh, and I don't think that he's finished uh, necessarily by what's happened in the last week. And I don't think the PTI is finished either uh, as a political force. Whether it is successful uh, in elections, uh, which will be fairly soon, I would imagine, is it, perhaps another issue. 
One of the facets of this populism is Imran Khan's rhetoric and the issues he raised at the global forums. He is known to speak out against Islamophobia. Domestically, he has always been a harsh critic of the US war on terror and the US drone strikes in Pakistan's tribal areas. Professor Talbot says Khan wanted to develop a new type of relationship with the West. He wanted to carve out, uh, again, a different path for Pakistan, perhaps than uh, had happened traditionally. Certainly, uh, he was, I think, uh, very much talking about issues like Islamophobia internationally, which other uh, Pakistan uh, leaders didn't really address. He wanted to maintain good relations, uh, but not subservient relations with the West, at the same time as uh, being aware of changing international blocks, if you like, with the emergence of China. He was trying to, I think, carve out again a different uh, or slightly different approach, a personalized approach. And, and yet probably some of the things he said were uh, perhaps undiplomatic. Uh, on occasions, and sometimes I think uh, he probably wasn't aware, you know, of, of the fact that that what might be good political rhetoric at home wouldn't necessarily play so well in in the international arena. Imran Khan came into politics as a new force, a force his supporters say against Pakistan's dynastic politics, where two powerful families, the Bhuttos and the Sharifs have been wrangling for power since the late 1980s. Now he's back on roads, rallying tens of thousands of people, not only for new elections, but with a new political message, to rid Pakistan of what he calls is an imported government of Shehbaz Sharif. Sharif is the younger brother of former Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif. Prime Minister Shehbaz Sharif himself is out on bail on money laundering charges. His niece, Nawaz Sharif's daughter, has defended her uncle, saying Shahbaz Sharif was arrested only because he refused to play in the hands of those who wanted to use him against his brother. The new coalition Shahbaz is heading is a collection of parties who have competed with each other in the past. How easy would it be for this coalition to hold fast as Khan keeps up the pressure with public protests? Khan has called for snap elections, but Professor Talbot says calling these early elections may not be as easy as it sounds. Elections cannot be held uh, at least until August uh, because uh, there's got to be uh, a delimitation of constituencies which won't be completed uh, until that date because, of course, um, parts of the former federal tribal area uh, uh, have been brought into the mainstream. There's also, of course, the issues of electoral reforms electronic voting machines, uh, how overseas Pakistanis can vote uh, in the next elections. So all of these things are going to delay the elections probably until October so that we've got a, a, a period of time where uh, this new government uh, can perhaps uh, establish itself. On the other hand, it could be a period of time which strengthens Imran Khan's position because he's going to be able to concentrate on uh, populist sort of electioneering. Also, this is a coalition government with disparate groups within it uh, who may not be able to maintain their unity, which uh, was really primarily around 
the overthrow of Imran Khan uh, as uh, leader of Pakistan. They, they could pull in different directions. So it, it's a very uncertain period of time that we're going to have uh, in Pakistan between now and, and when uh, the elections are held. And, and I think that uh, that's why it's difficult to predict. Johan says that coming weeks and months are going to see a lot of political turbulence in Pakistan. Imran Khan still retains the, the hearts and minds of a sizable minority of the population. And I think he's going to attempt to mobilize them to destabilize and delegitimize the existing government and put himself in the best possible position for the next elections. And so that's obviously going to have some drag on or political stability and the economy. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Sohail Akram. Thanks this week to Professor Ian Talbot and Johan Chako. This week's episode was produced by Aisha Khan and Arthur Edison. Thanks for listening. <laughs>